Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 24, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. On today's episode, I am joined by the two people behind Wooly Thoughts, Pat Ashforth and Steve Plummer. We talk about how knitting can help one teach mathematics and how they just really like to play at maths. Here we go. So uh, with me today, I have uh, the people behind Woolly Thoughts, which it turns out is not actually a sheep. Uh, I have uh, Pat Ashworth and Steve Plummer, a husband and wife team from the UK of either designers of mathematical knitwear or mathematical designers of knitwear. Their website isn't entirely too clear on that. Uh, so uh, hello, welcome to the show. Hello. <laughs> the, when you say designers of mathematical knitwear or mathematical designers of knitwear, it's knitwear itself. Um, <laughs> it's been a long time since we actually knitted stuff that, that you know, for wearing kind of thing. We're possibly best known for our large-scale mathematical wall hangings. Yes. So calling it, calling it knitwear is... Uh, Knitwear is possibly a misnomer. It's where we started, though. It's where we started, but that's an awfully long time ago now. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, just quoting your website. Uh, yep. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you were both uh, math, uh, mathematics teachers uh, in the UK, in the high schools in the UK. Uh, is, is that where the idea initially came for starting to do uh, mathematical designs in knitting? Well, if I can give you a bit of history, I mean, um, we're both retired now. We took uh, early retirement from teaching, and it allows us to do all kinds of uh, But we're very much educationalists. So mathematical education is where we come from, kind of thing. Um, we came across each other a long time ago in a school in Luton in the south of England, which is, um, it's 97% Asian students, the school was, and very much English was a second language to the majority of students in the school. We got students in that school who had very little English at all, and Pat and I were both working in the maths department in that school. Um, we... Pat used to knit. I didn't knit at that time. Pat knitted. And she'd knit without knitting patterns. And knitting without knitting patterns was something I'd never seen before. It fascinated me. And we got talking. And both being uh, our favorite kind of branch of mathematics is geometry, I suppose. And the actual knitting shapes, geometrical shapes, to fit together to create garments at that time was generally we were talking about, you know, what kind of shapes can you fit together. Um, there was an awful lot of mathematical language involved. Um, and 
talking about these shapes, we developed the use of these kind of shapes, these knitted type of shapes, in the maths lessons that we taught, particularly in the vocabulary. It might have been in paper or... The, you know, it needn't, needn't necessarily have been knitted, it could have been in paper, it could have been in card, anything like that. So we, you know, we came across each other a good number of years ago, and it was basically that we were using mathematical shapes, talking about mathematical shapes and how mathematical shapes fitted together, and then the extension of that was how mathematical shapes fitted together to create a garment. Now, the, using those shapes, we got an awful lot of work. I mean, knitting in garter stitch, was the, which is the stitch we tended to use at the time. Garter stitch, very simple stitch in, in knitting. Knitting, it's very easy to create angles of 45 degrees, 90 degrees, and multiples of 45 degrees kind of thing. So 45, 90, 135. And shapes like that very easily fit together. So you can create squares, octagons, all okay. kinds of shapes like that, and then fit them together to create garments. Now, when I left the school um, after a couple of years to become head of maths in Lancashire, uh, we decided we got so many ideas about these shapes and fitting shapes together, and so many ideas about the language connected with shapes and tessellation that we wrote our first book, which was Woolly Thoughts, which is where Woolly Thoughts actually comes from. Everything ever since has been called... Everything ever thoughts. since has been called Woolly Thoughts, and we call ourselves then Woolly Thoughts. Now, we've gone on from there. We were asked, um, you know, because of the stuff we'd done in Woolly Thoughts, we were asked by uh, Brown Sheep in the States to create an Afghan, uh, and we put together a mathematical Afghan, and it was such a revelation to us that we could create uh, ma big, large-scale mathematical diagrams kind of thing that we never went back to creating garments, really, <laughs> that we concentrated mainly on the large-scale mathematical Afghans, which will either be um, as uh, to demonstrate a particular part of maths a particular thing in maths, like, um, for example, we would have Afghans that demonstrate uh, Pythagoras' theorem or Fibonacci. Dragon curves. Dragon curves, if you've come across dragon curves, uh, space-filling curves, all kinds of things like that. Um, we did uh, some work on that was bought by the Science Museum in London uh, are, as part of their mathematical collection. One of them was, was Penrose. We did. Roger Penrose actually sent us a design to use, which we used for an Afghan that was bought by the Science Museum. So, we did, you know, the stuff from Roger Penrose, the, he sent us that. Um, part of it is to describe, to show mathematical ideas. The other part of it might be simply to create a pretty picture... <laughs> I'd say, that is, in essence, mathematical. Or oh, that gives you something to talk about that is mathematical. Yeah, so a large-scale wall hanging in a class. Students who don't have English as their first language could get up close to these, could touch them. We could talk about the way various angles went together. We could talk about 
uh, Fibonacci sequence. We could talk about uh, multiplication tables that we'd put on one of our Afghans. Um, we had large-scale floor games for lower ability students to play with. Theoretically, for younger children and lower ability. Yeah. So we actually got some 15-year-old streetwise boys who said, please, can we take our shoes off and play? <laughs> <laughs> but the, I mean, that's the way it started off, creating these large-scale Afghans. We then branched out into working with other groups, groups outside schools. Um, so people like the Women's Institute in England, um, generally women's craft groups. And we would take our work along to them and try and give these people, many of whom had a fear of maths, try yeah. and give these people avenues into maths, non-threatening avenues into maths. We run a workshop and only about an hour into it would we actually mention maths for the first time. And then you always get somebody who said, but I can't do maths until you say, well, you have already been doing lots of mathematical things. You've just used Pythagoras theorem or you've just been using the square root of two or something else that they've probably never even heard of. And they're just, some are horrified that they've been doing these things and <laughs> others are possibly amazed that they can do it at all. But it's, we seem to have been very successful in uh, getting people who are perhaps maths-phobic interested in maths and, you know, getting people to react to maths and to talk about maths, not necessarily specifically naming it as maths, but a, a large, thing, large part of the work that we do is trying to get people involved in mathematics. You are listening to Strongly Connected Components. My guests on today's episode are Pat Ashforth and Steve Plummer, the minds behind Wooly Thoughts. Now, I'm just popping in to let you know once again that pretty soon I'm going to be taking a trip to the UK to give a couple of talks as well as record my other, other podcast, Math Maths, live at the University of Greenwich on November 17th, 1 p.m. Queen Anne 180. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of of a taste of what you would be getting if you decide to join us there. In the not too distant future, mankind walks along the edge of ruin. Having long forsaken academic impulse, people have become completely reliant on machines for all their mathematical needs, and one man plans to make them all pay. But there is still hope. For within a single person lies the seed of heroism, a person who calls themselves Maths. Raised in the wilderness by the secret tenure monks, will this savior complete his training in time to rescue humanity, or will it be crushed under the boot heels of the mysterious villain? All of this and more will be revealed at the live entertainment event of the fall. Peter Rowlett plays Maths, and Samuel Hansen, the brutish scoundrel math. In Math Maths Live, one day only, at the University of Greenwich, Queen Anne 180, 1 p.m., November the 17th. If you want a little bit more information, or you just want to let Peter and I know that you are going to come to that recording to one of my other talks, head on over to 
bit.ly slash mathmathsweek. And Peter has all of the information about the talks and the live recording right there for you to see. Now, let's get back to this interview. Now, you, you've intimated and you've essentially said uh, that this does seem to be an effective way to get uh, people interested. What about uh, either doing the knitting of the patterns or actually just being able to go up and see it, do you really think allows the mathematical part of their brain to kind of take over and uh, let them do maths at a level that they did not themselves know that they were aware that they could do? That's a difficult question. It, it's a bit of a difficult question. Uh, but the activity is almost secondary. The knitting activity is possibly secondary. And it allows an awful lot of thinking and discussion um, to go on. It, the knitting actually gives people something to hang mathematical ideas on. And very often when people are actually knitting something, they, once they start and they're doing it mechanically, they will be ta start talking about other things. Now, if we were actually deliberately wanting children to talk about mathematical things, you, you bend the conversation the way you want it to go. But we also had an example not very long ago of somebody who came back to us years after she'd used one of our math projects in school and told us that we'd actually solved the drugs problem in her school because they'd had sitting knitting after school, relaxed atmosphere, and they were able to talk to the teachers in a different way from the way they'd ever talked to them before. Now, it has no bearing on the maths at all, but it was absolutely staggering to think that had happened as a result of something that was meant to be mathematical. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic, actually. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's a social activity, and if you can create a situation where maths becomes a social activity, then you're halfway to getting the subject across you, in a non-threatening way. We play at maths. Yes, we, very, we describe ourselves. We, we used to go to maths conferences and do talks and things at maths conferences. Um, and you're serious mathematicians, the ones who go for the serious sums, and we go to play at maths and to make maths acceptable. That is, that is definitely a problem uh, over on this side of the Atlantic as well. Uh, there, there's very little playfulness in mathematics here. Now, another thing that you uh, do is that you run workshops uh, with, uh, you know, putting across the ideas, at least I'm assuming putting across the ideas that you've been speaking of. Uh, and they have, they have wonderful names. Uh, it's Square to Eternity, Octo Hats, Mathemagical Mittens, Mobius Crochet. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, how do these uh, workshops essentially function? <laughs> yes. The, the workshops, the way they would function is we would, from Square to Eternity, which is possibly the major workshop it's we do. It's a special title, isn't it? And it's, if you, if you start off with a knitted square and you want to pick up the stitches along one side well, of the it, square... It's that the vital point about this square has to be knitted from one corner. Right. Starting with one stitch. So we don't do, we don't cast on the stitches for a, a square as a lot of people would do. We start with one stitch, and then you increase that on the second row, you've got two stitches, and on the third row, you've got three stitches, and the fourth row, you've got four stitches. So you're already talking about triangular numbers, if you want to. But you keep on increasing until that square fits onto a template that you've drawn in advance or given to the people in the workshop in advance. 
um, if it was in a workshop, we would give them a template so that they all have a square that's exactly the same size. And then we go on to the bit that Steve was just talking about. But that brings to mind, I mean, Pat was saying there about triangular numbers. It also brings in the triangular numbers. Two consecutive triangular numbers create a square number. So there's mathematics coming in right from the start, if we want to use it. If you want to pick the stitches up along one side of that square that you've created and then decrease at the end of each row, you will create a right angle triangle on that side of the square. To pick up those stitches, you needed to use Pythagoras' theorem, a calculation with Pythagoras' theorem, and the number of stitches you had on the diagonal of the square to give you the number of stitches you need to pick up. So we've gone through triangular numbers, two triangular numbers make consecutive triangular numbers making a square number, uh, using Pythagoras' theorem to pick up these stitches. You can then start talking about the size of the triangle you've created in relation to your original but square. We, we actually would be asking somebody to use Pythagoras' theorem very often in a workshop. At that stage in the workshop where we're not wanting to mention maths, the only thing we tell them is that they need to divide by 1.4. 1.4 is an approximation to root 2, and that's what they would get if they actually applied Pythagoras' theorem. But we do a big um, dramatic gesture with a big, big calculator and just divide by 1.4 and know that they're going to get the right answer even without knowing why they get the right answer. But while we're doing this, while we're deciding if the group is at the right stage for us to say Pythagoras' theorem, or if we need to just talk about 1.4 and then bring Pythagoras' theorem in later, or while we're trying to decide if we should then start talking about the ratio of the size of the triangle you've just created in relation to the size of the original square. Each of the triangles would fold in right to the centre of the original square. It is now twice as big on a side as the original square was. And you, double the area. Sorry, double the area. You, you, know, you go on. And all the time you are trying to decide if the group are ready for the next bit of maths. They are knitting. They are socialising. So they're in a non-threatening situation. And you are feeding in the language at the appropriate level for the group as they are at that time. When we were teaching, we, we taught on our feet. We thought on our feet kind of thing. We worked with the responses of the kids and what we were going to say from the responses we got from the kids. It's the same with you know, groups outside school, that if we're trying to get mathematical points across, we take their responses and decide if we're ready to put the next bit of maths in. But it's all in a kind of non-threatening social atmosphere. Does that make sense? Oh, no, that, that definitely does. Uh, now, another thing that I uh, noticed, uh, well, specifically, I was, I was searching for you on Google, and I came across uh, your Etsy shop where you sell uh, the knitting patterns. And one thing that I noticed on there that I hadn't uh, before is that you also uh, sell patterns for uh, mathematical toys. I was, I was wondering how, uh, well, I mean, uh, most people know how mathematical toys work, but this seems like a, uh, one, they not, would not be as easily destructible as most mathematical toys made out of, say, plastic or wood. And also, uh, it would seem that you could make a lot for a cheaper price. You have a lot of, say, teachers 
uh, buying these patterns and using from you? The hexaflexagon is the most popular, I think. And I don't, I don't think, I think they're more individuals rather than teachers. I don't, I'm not really aware of teachers using them a great deal. I think more teachers actually use some of the, the large Afghans than, than the toys. But then we haven't had the toys for as long. We probably only had those for a couple of years. So perhaps people, and we don't, we don't advertise things at all. We have an Etsy shop. We sell things on Ravelry, which you, you, may, you may be aware of Ravelry. It's a huge, huge knitting site. Um, but we don't actually advertise. We've, we've never been a proper business. We were math teachers who did this as a sideline. And it takes people a while that we've got, really. This is, this is, for us, is very much a hobby. Okay. No, it makes sense. Yeah. And our interest is maths. And, you know, we try to develop that through our workshops and through the Afghans, through the toys, through all kinds of things. You were saying before about names of things like Square to Eternity, that type of thing. Just continuing with that. Square to Eternity, um, the starting off with the original square, picking up stitches along the side of the original square and knitting right angle triangles, you create a new square, pick up stitches along the side of that, create right angle triangles on the side of that, you create a new square. You're getting bigger and bigger squares all the time. Yeah. And that's where the Square to Eternity comes from. Now, while we're going through that, the explanation of that, we'll then go into the fact that if you take that kind of diagram, the square to eternity diagram, squares within squares within squares, if you colour it slightly differently, you end up with a Baravel spiral. And we can show people that, you know, simply changing the colour or the order of colours in a design will change from the square to eternity diagram to the Baravel spiral. And it gets people involved in, oh, yeah, I could, you know, I could use different colours in different places. And, and you also get optical illusions when you do that, because if you use two colours, some people see, the, the diagram we have is in orange and purple. Some people see purple spirals on an orange background. Some see it the other way around. And very often they can't see both versions. And it provokes quite a lot of discussion. It's quite interesting that people things that weren't they didn't see before and they, at that point we would also tend to to say that you know it's very important that you realize that not everyone is seeing things in the same way and we feel that that's important in maths lessons as well you know that um out of a group of students no matter what age they are um it's very possible that they are not all seeing a diagram in the same way. You know, it's highly likely that they are seeing diagrams differently. Now, it, I have, I have uh, just one final, uh, more general question. Uh, so, I mean, you've, you've noticed a lot of things. You've uh, commented that math uh, could definitely be more social. It could be more fun. If you had uh, one suggestion to people who are uh, currently teaching mathematics, uh, and in order to make people engage more, what would your suggestion be? Throw your textbooks away. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one approach that we know has been taken by some friends of ours. Um, it's very easy to rely on a textbook. Uh, it's very easy to 
rely on lessons that you've prepared and are tried and tested. You've tried and tested them over years. But we feel that you should be reacting to what the students are saying back to you. To, you know, that your teaching needs to change and adapt to relate to what... And you need to be confident enough in what you're doing to be able to do that in the first place. Yeah. You need to be happy to, you know, just teach on your feet and experiment and, you know, just try different things. And very often, if you can create a social type of atmosphere, you are, you know, halfway there to, to actually getting maths taught through discussion rather than through diktat. Okay, well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, everyone, make sure to head on over to woollythoughts.com to find out more about the wonderful things that uh, my guests do. All right, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And you. And that is all the time that we have for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. As always, if you want to leave me some feedback, perhaps suggest an interview guest you would love for me to have on the show. Email me, samuel at acmescience.com. I promise I will read it, and I can almost certainly promise that I will do everything I can to remember to reply to it. Really, I'll reply. So if you just want to say hi, just send me an email. The music on today's episode was from Hard and Firm in the intro, and the interstitial and outro music is from SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org. Once again, head on over to bit.ly slash mathmathsweek for more information about my trip to the UK, or you can just head on over to acmescience.com for the blog post with more information about the people on this episode as well as links and videos about my trip to the UK because I can't possibly promote that enough at this point in time. This episode as always is a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike licensed podcast. So you know what? Do something with it. Really. I would love to hear any remix that you can come up with. Thank you very much for listening and I promise I will have you listening to another episode very, very soon.